Thank you. Is it just me or are they on point today? I mean, holy cow. I, you know, I'm, I'm going to, I might cut my sermon in half just so we can do a little more singing. That was fantastic. Well, I want to start off by talking about this one time when my family and I, two or three years ago, went to Great Wolf Lodge. Has anybody been to Great Wolf Lodge? Just out of curiosity. Okay, so let me get a quick little breakdown of what Great Wolf Lodge is. Um, it's, uh, I hate putting it this way. It's kind of Disney on a budget in a way. Um, and don't get me wrong. It's really cool. It's, so it's a, it's a hotel that is attached to an indoor water park. They have an outdoor portion, but we always go when it's colder. It's a little cheaper that way. Um, and there's a few other games, arcade, different stuff like that. So it's a fun little getaway spot to go to. So our kids are fairly young and we're sitting in the wave pool and, and pretty much any water park has a wave pool. You know what I'm talking about? And at this wave pool, uh, that was my son's favorite one because he wasn't quite big enough to go on the bigger slides yet. And so he loved the wave pool. Well, our whole family's kind of taking a load off. We're sitting there. And so we're all sitting in the shallow end. I'm sitting to the point where like I can sit on my rear end and like I'm fine. So it's very, very shallow. My son goes three, four feet further where it comes up, water comes up to about right here on him. And while we're standing there, so Ash and I are sitting in the really shallow end. Gatlin is a little further out. And again, he's like four or five years old. And he's, he's standing against the waves. And every time a wave comes, he's going like this. As it hits him, he goes, da! Da! over and over. Every time a wave comes, he puffs his chest out and acts like, I can take this. This water has nothing on me because, well, it's a wave pool and he's in the shallow end. And, I, and he does this for like 10 minutes straight. Just stands there and just takes waves in the chest over and over and over. And uh, my wife looks, looks at him and then says to me, he is so your son. And <laughs> I, now when he, when as she's saying this, I'm laughing so hard. And she's like, why is this so funny to you? I said, let me tell you a little something about me when I was little. When I was little, our family would go to uh, Destin, Florida or Gulf Shores, Alabama I would wade to about where the water was about here when I was that age, and I would stand as the waves went and go, da, da, and I said, Ashley, true story, I've never told Gatlin that I did that before. He didn't hear that and think, I need to do that too, and she's like, good gracious, and, and there's been times like in the office, I've, I've gone and I'm, I'm telling Leslie something, and I'll make a face, I'll... I'll say something and she will just stop and let go. That was Gatlin. That was, that was literally Gatlin just now. If you want to know what I was like when I was seven, just go talk to my son. It's, it's kind of uncanny just how much. Now, there should be uh, a slideshow. Could we put my slideshow on the back? And there should be a picture of my wife and my two older daughters. Can we go to that picture? Okay. So this is my wife and, and my two older daughters. Here's what's crazy. Let me, let me show you something real quick. I'm going to stand in front of Addison. Look at how much Audrey and Addison, uh, excuse me, Audrey and Ashley look alike. It's quite a bit, right? They're getting ready for an 80s party. They don't normally dress like this. Um, so look how much they look alike. Now, I'm going to stand in front of Audrey. Look at how much Ashley and Addison look alike. It's quite a bit too, right? I'm going to stand in front of Ashley. Ashley, you're this tall in real life too. So uh, look, at, look at Audrey and Addison. 
Isn't it weird that they both look like their mother, but they don't look like each other? How crazy is that? Um, there's, there's this fascination that we have with, with our kids and with our parents, because at some point, many of us will say or do something, we'll make a look and, and we'll hear, you're just like your parent or your child is just like you. Now, at the, at the same time, something has been debated, discussed, talked about in, in scholarly and theological circles is called the imago day or the image of God. And the question is, what does God actually look like? We've never, you know, we don't know exactly what that is and we get a little bit of Jesus, but there isn't a whole lot of description of what Jesus looks like either. Now, in Genesis chapter one, starting in verse 26, here's where the, this image concept begins. Verse 26, then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, the wild animals on the earth, the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. And to start worship, uh, Nick read from a passage that talks about since we are children of God, if we want to look like the image of God, then how might we look as well? Now, Galatians 2.20, Paul says this, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Point number one, I want to make as children of God, we carry the DNA and characteristics of him. Um, John Wesley wrote uh, that, that in the theologian John Wesley wrote that if we carry the spirit of God dwelling within us, then we are by definition the personification of God. That is powerful stuff right there. The personification of God. Now, if we are going to be children of God, people who look like God, how might we want to go about looking more like God? See, whether it's a parent or, or even if it's a hero, we all have these people that we model ourselves after, mentors, superheroes. Um, but if we're going to model ourselves more after God, more after Jesus Christ, more after the Spirit, what might that look like? John also continues later on in his letter. So if you'll go to 1 John 3, we're going to be going through a few different areas of this, uh, this passage and of this chapter. So verse 7 of chapter 3, John writes this, Dear children, don't let anyone deceive you about this. When people do what is right, it shows that they are righteous, even as Christ is righteous. But when people keep on sinning, it shows that they belong to the devil who has been sinning since the beginning. But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning because God's life is in them. So they can't keep on sinning because they are children of God. So now we can tell who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Anyone who does not live righteously does not, and does not love other believers does not belong to God. Now, there's a couple of examples of this, but John is making a really important distinction 
Because in, in Christian pop culture, and oftentimes what we've been taught, maybe growing up, and maybe you, you were taught this for a long, long time. I, I know I, I don't think I was intentionally taught this, but it's, it's the impression I got was the children of God don't sin. And, and I, I was, it's kind of sad, but I was also a little relieved to know that that's not true. The children of God do sin. And what John is saying here is people who are not making a habit of sinning. And there is a real distinction. And John, in his gospel, points to two, there's two different stories that point to this directly. John chapter five. We read about this. We talked about this three, four weeks ago, where Jesus comes across a man who's been lame for 38 years. Jesus looks at him. Remember the question, right? Do you want to get well? And the man starts making different excuses. Jesus eventually says, take up your mat and walk. Later on, this man has the mat and he's in the synagogue and Jesus walks past him and he looks at him and he says, now you are better. Stop sinning or something worse might happen. Here's what we can deduce out of what Jesus said right here is that it wasn't, this man did not commit one bad sin. And then because of that, boom, he is suffering for 38 years. No, no, no. This is something where this man had been signing up for a life of sin again and again and again. And Jesus is saying, stop, because that was pulling the life out of you. It was sucking the life out of you. And that was a part of why you had this struggle. In the same way, John chapter eight, one of people's favorite stories in the gospel of John. John chapter eight, Jesus is uh, standing on the road, on a road, and Jesus uh, is brought before him a crowd with the Pharisees, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. They bring this woman, they throw her in front of him, and they said, Jesus, this woman was just caught in the act of adultery. Now, according to our law, she should be stoned right here and now. As they're saying this, people are picking up stones, getting ready, like we are going to exact the law on this woman. They said, what do you say? Now, the Pharisees had a, had a deeper plan. Truthfully, they didn't care about the woman and they didn't care about the law. They cared about catching Jesus in his words because if they said, let's follow the law, stoner. Then, they, then the Pharisees would say, see, this man is not gracious. He is not merciful. He doesn't believe in those things. However, if he says, I think we should forgive her. Let's show her grace and mercy. They can say, oh, then you're not a teacher of the law. You don't know the law. You don't follow the law. Jesus gives them something completely different from either of those. He says, I'll tell you what. The person who's never sinned before, that person can throw the first stone. And the area went silent. A few people dropped their stones because they know, I'm not throwing it. I'm not, I've sinned. And then more and more. And before long, Jesus looks up and only the woman is there standing with him. The only person who had the ability to condemn this woman. It's just the two of them. And he looks and he says, woman, has no one condemned you? embarrassed, ashamed, this woman looks and says, no one, sir. And Jesus says, then neither do I condemn you. Get this. He follows it up with it though. And he says, go now and leave your life of sin. This was not a one-time thing for this woman. This was not the first time she had been unfaithful in her marriage. It had happened more than once. And Jesus isn't looking and say, this one thing you did that was bad, it's not redeemable. Jesus is looking and saying, no, 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 this, this is a life that, 
that you formed out of this sin. Leave the life. And so, as far as looking more like God, let me tell you something about the children of God. Point number two, committing sin, unfortunately, is something that all people will do. It's inevitable. Each and every one of us, including me, we are all going to commit sin. We are all going to do things that is not a part of the life and the commands of God through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. It's just inevitable. However, while committing sin is something everyone will do, living in sin is what the children of God will not do. And here's what God is saying. Here's what Christ is saying. Look, I gave you the cross. I gave you my life. So when that sin happens, inevitably, unfortunately, atone for it, name it, own it, and say, God, I messed up, and I want to be better. I want to do better. Not because, well, that's just what a good Christian does, but have you ever noticed those sins that we get wrapped up in? Have you ever noticed they begin sucking the life out of us? Maybe if you've ever struggled with addiction or know someone who has, have you ever noticed that addiction just pulls all sorts of life out from you and it tends to suck the life out of the people around that person too? That can be so debilitating in so many different ways. And so what Jesus is saying, what John is saying here isn't don't ever sin again. It is notice what is being taken from you because Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and life to the fullest. So let's look at the end of John chapter, 1 John 3 and see what he says, verse 23, and what this means to look more like the image of God. Verse 23, and this is his commandment. We must believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Those who obey God's commandments remain in fellowship with him and he with them. And we know he lives in us because the spirit he gave us lives in us. Now, Paul, John wrote this, Paul echoes the same sentiment. Ephesians 5, going starting in verse 1, Paul says this, imitate God, therefore, in everything you do because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Now, I'm going to give you, we're going to get, we're going to get pretty deep this morning, or at least we're going to get theological, academic. That's how you know I didn't come up with this stuff. Somebody else did. I'm just going to copy their stuff, but tr- I made it up. I totally made it up. So here's what, here's a, a concept I want to give you. Okay. It's called missional theosis, missional theosis. And it was, uh, the, the guy who I've read the most from about this, I don't know that he coined the term, but missional theosis is this. Missional theosis in its most simplistic format is becoming so enamored and entangled and wrapped up with living out the mission of God that you begin to look like God. How cool is that? You are so wrapped up in what God is doing in the world that you start looking like God. And uh, Michael Gorman from Princeton, uh, no, St. Mary's, from St. Mary's University, he wrote a whole lot about this, about what missional theosis truly looks like. And he says it has two primary principles about what it looks like to look like God because you are so about living into his mission in the world. Point number one comes from John chapter 15 where Jesus is talking to his disciples on the night before he is arrested. 
Starting in verse 5, he says this, Yes, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want and it will be granted. When you produce much fruit, you will be my true disciples. This brings great glory to God the Father. So point number one of missional theosis is to abide. Jesus says, I am the true vine, he who abides, he who lives in me and I in them. Later on in chapter 17, Jesus' final prayer before he gets arrested is, God, may my disciples, may my followers, may they be one with you just like I am one with you. This idea of living within the life of God and God dwelling within each of us, this personification of God is core to us becoming people who look like God. Then point number two, John chapter 13. If you go back just a little bit, in John's gospel account, this was kind of the beginning of the Last Supper. And John's account looks a little different because Jesus, to begin chapter 13, grabs a towel and a bucket of water, and he gets down on his knees, and he washes the feet of his disciples. As disgusting as that sounds now, I would mention it was even more disgusting back then because they didn't have Nikes. Nike did not exist at this point. Nike was still a goddess of victory at that point and not a shoe company. And so everybody walked around, many were barefoot, but many walked around with very little to no covering for their feet. You can imagine how calloused, how nasty and filthy it was. And, and so this wasn't just a, hey, um, your feet that have been in socks and shoes uh, this morning, like if I were to wash someone's feet up here, it, it, for several, it probably wouldn't even smell that bad. We haven't even run, right? These people, like they had been all day doing this and no one washed feet. It was considered one of the dirtier parts of the human body. And Jesus gets down on his knees and he washes every single foot of the disciples. And afterwards he looks at them after he's done and he said, do you understand what I just did for you? said, a master is not greater than, a, a master is greater than his servant. Servants are not greater than his master. But I am your master. Do you, do you understand what I just did for you? Because, and if you do, I want you to now go do this for everybody. And so point number two of missional theosis, of becoming the people that look more like God, looks like this, to go and serve. And so the two core principles that Gorman talks about in looking like God involve abide and go. Live in the life of God and then take God that dwells within you in you out into the world and serve. Serve in ways that are unpopular. Serve in ways that anybody else would say, nah, I'm above that. Love in ways that no one could have even imagined before. So with that being said, we've talked about a few different areas and in John 13, Gorman references this German theologian named Udo Schnell who says this is the self-exegesis of God for him to say this, which is a, a huge way of saying this is God standing in front of the world through John's account and saying, this is who I am. I am an infinite God who is all-powerful, and yet I am willing to get down on my knees and clean the dirtiest 
part of you because that's how much I love you. So what does that look like? In, in our world, in our life, because we've talked academic circles and we've taught scripture. Let me tell you, my favorite Bible class that I ever took while I was in seminary was a class called Missional Strategy. It was t- taught by a man by the name of Earl Lavender. And to kick off the class, Dr. Lavender gets up and he says, let me tell you guys something. I hate my first name. I hated it for so long. Earl, are you kidding me? What were my parents thinking when they named me Earl? And I'm thinking that's an interesting way to start a, a master's level theology class, but okay. And he said, it was, it was miserable until something happened. But before this, growing up, I get named Earl after a friend of my parents. And so anytime someone met me and they thought they were hilarious, they would you know, hey, I'm so-and-so, and I'd say, hi, I'm Earl. Then they'd go, Duke, 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 Duke of Earl, Duke, Duke. And he's like, oh, yeah, I've never heard that one before. That really annoyed him. And then he'd get questions of, are, are, you, a, uh, uh, are you a British royalty person? Or he's like, no. And they're like, are you a 1,000 years old? He's like, no, I'm not, I'm not that either. And he, uh, he said, it drove me nuts because all my other friends had cool names like John and Steve. And I wanted those names, but nope, I was Earl. I was the guy named Earl until something happened. You see, he went to visit the man he was named after. And this is at this point, Dr. Lavender has his master's, his doctorate, his PhD, and he goes to visit the man he was named after. Now, this man had decided that God was calling him to love and serve the least of these. So his family that had been very well off decided to sell what they could and buy a home in one of the lowest income neighborhoods in the entire city that they lived in. They, they said, we're going to f- go after these people. We're going to go find them. We're going to reach them in the name of Jesus. And he and his wife decided that they didn't have like a building to run out of. They weren't planting a church. They just bought one of the houses that was right there with all the other ones and said, we're just going to live in community with these people. So they started off by going out. And he noticed a lot of the kids were just playing in their front yards and in the street. And so he decided, you know what, I'll start with them. And so he goes, he starts meeting them, and he'll say, hey, let's, let's play some kickball. You guys want to play kickball together? And then as he gets to know the names, he would go to them and say, you know, hey, I'd love to meet your parents. Could you, could you introduce me? Because I think you're really cool, and I want to tell your parents how cool you are. And the kids love hearing that. It's so like, yeah, absolutely. So they go in. And he said, you know, the more that he noticed of what was going on, he noticed how many fathers were not present in these kids' lives. And so he realized, God's put me here because I need to be a dad to kids who live in about 20 different homes in this neighborhood. And so he started doing not just kickball, but also having hangout times. And they would, he'd do simple Bible stories. He wouldn't, they wouldn't crack open the Bible. He would just tell stories from scripture and talk about that in a way that these kids could understand it. And for the kids who were willing, he would go to their homes and work with them and their parents on doing homework. He would talk about their grades. He would meet their parents and grandparents and love on them in whatever ways he could. Now, years later, Dr. Lavender ends up going and spending time with this man. And he had never seen his ministry before, but he had heard how great of a person he was. And it was his namesake. So, of course, his parents were really big on him. And so he said, you know, guy who has doctorate, master's, PhD, he said, hey, tell me how your ministry is going. He's thinking, you know, I'm educated, so I can help this man. And he said, well, uh, how about we just go walk down the street and we'll see. And Dr. Lavender's like, uh, 
okay, I, I figured you'd just tell me here. But, okay, yeah, let's go walk down the street. So they go out the house and they, they start walking down the street. And as they're walking, he starts talking about a few different projects he's done, events he's done. But as they're walking, one kid just comes busting out of his house and just runs toward Mr. Earl and gives him a big hug. And he says, hey, how are you doing? How's school going? How's your mom doing? Is she doing okay? Is your sister doing okay? And as they're talking, another kid comes. Same thing happens. Another, another, another. And before Dr. Lavender knows it, his namesake, Earl, is being hugged and surrounded by at least a dozen kids who just saw Mr. Earl walking down the street, running just to give a hug and just to tell Mr. Earl what has been going on in their life. And as they walk a little bit more, hand in hand, talking, they look at my professor, who they hadn't really given paid much attention to, and they look at him and they say, hey, well, who are you? We've been walking for a while now. I should probably know your name. Who, who are you? What, what's your name? And my professor looks and he says, well, my name's Earl. I, I, I was actually named after this guy that you're talking to. And their jaws dropped. Just this amazement. And my professor's looking around thinking, why was that such a big deal? And one of the kids finally speaks up and he says, wow, I wish I had the same name as the Jesus man. And right there, Lavender looks at us in class and he says, y'all, I don't ever want any other name in life because I share the same first name as the Jesus man. So what might it look like to look like Jesus, to look like God? You know, your culture, our culture, is telling us so much that it's not about anything other than what you do and accomplish in life. And John is sitting here saying, no, 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 no. God wants you to know not what you do. We, he wants you to start with who you are. He wants to start that you are a child of God. So our praise team is going to come out. You guys can come on out. Our praise team is going to come out, and we're going to sing a song about identity. We're going to start in identity and talk with a song about who God is and who we are. Because so often in our lives, we want so desperately to say, look, here's what I accomplished. Let me tell you this, church. God does not, isn't concerned about the greatest thing that you have ever done in his name. God is not concerned about the worst thing you have ever done in his name. Does he care? Yeah. You know what he cares the most about? He cares about you knowing that you belong to him. That's what he cares the most about. So whether you've encountered hard things, whether you've signed up and been living in hard things that has made your life difficult, I want you to start with this. Before you say, I'm too far gone, God's sitting there saying, you were mine before you ever left, and it never changed. So I'm going to read this passage over to you. May it bring you this piece of understanding that God has covered you and that each and every one of you, despite how ashamed or hurt or fearful or upset that you may feel in life, whether it be now or sometime down the road or in the past, you are the children of God. Isaiah 43. Do not be afraid. For I have ransomed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. 
When you go through deep waters, I will be with you. And when you go through rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior.